Call centers are a vulnerable point of attack for large enterprises like banks. Fraud is responsible for more than $20 billion in lost money every year, and a significant portion of that fraud is due to customer service representatives being victims of fraudulent social engineering attacks. Chris Halacek joins the show today to discuss how Pindrop Security is addressing this attack vector. Every phone call that gets made to a call center has a unique phone print, and the machine learning model at Pindrop Security uses these phone prints to assign a risk score to each call. Chris also discusses the challenges associated with scaling a cloud security company. If you like Software Engineering Daily, you might like checking out our newsletter, Software Weekly. Every week we spend, we send a short curated list of articles and blog posts and videos that the Software Engineering Daily team is curating and enjoying. And you can sign up for the newsletter. You can also join the Slack channel or find out how to contribute to Software Engineering Daily if you're curious about being a host. All of that is at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Chris Holacek is the VP of Engineering and Cloud Services at Pindrop Security. Chris, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Jeff, uh, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. Absolutely. It's great to have you. So today we're talking about Pindrop Security, which makes security software for call centers. For people who don't know, what is a call center? Yeah, so um, so it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, so if we typically work with... Um, large banks or financial institutions. And um, if, if you think about their, their front doors, um, if you will, I'd say there's, there's three of them today. Um, you know, they have their, uh, their physical branches where someone can walk in and, and, you know, withdraw money or move money around. Um, so that's sort of one, one avenue in the door, um, literally physically. Another one is online. So going to a, um, you know, a bank's website, um, and then, and then lastly is, you know, through the phone channel. So literally calling into the bank and, um, you know, engaging with typically um, first an interactive system that they call an IVR and then eventually reaching a live uh, customer support representative. So the, the call center is what powers um, that, that, that phone channel. So you can, you know, reach out to your bank and uh, engage in various actions like bank account balances and wire transfers and whatnot. So the people in a call center, they're sitting at a computer. What kind of software is that computer typically running? Do the calls get routed through a layer of software before they pick up the phone? Uh, yeah. So if you if you think about sort of the um, uh, the, the path that a, a typical incoming uh, kind of call takes, you know, it, it'll go through the caller's headset. Um, through some kind of origination lag, and then eventually hit a typically a, a telco carrier, you know, like a Verizon, and then get uh, terminated into you know one of several enterprise data centers, and they may have they have specific applications that will then help route it eventually to a a contact a contact center agent, and there's a variety of different software suites out there and toolings that that help power that to where they can. Um, you know, answer the call and then and then service whatever the customer request is. So there is a, you know, from the call initiation and origination, you know, this path through the telephony infrastructure that eventually gets terminated at a uh, typically an enterprise data center and call center. The nature of call center based security attacks are 
I think they fit into the category of social engineering. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a large number, or or, or you know, various types of, of of social engineering kind of aspects that go into um, what may end up being a um, a call center um, attack, if you will. Um, you know, what our statistics show is that typically there are five to six calls into a, a bank call center that lead up to, you know, what we would call an account takeover. So some fraudsters impersonating you, Jeff, and, um, you know, has gathered enough information to convince a, a, a customer support rep that they are indeed you and want to do something malicious. Um, what kinds of training, what kinds of training do the call center employees, the, the customer service representatives, what kinds of training do they receive to avert this kind of situation? Yeah, you know, historically, there. If you look at just the phone channel, um, you know, they they have a variety of different security mechanisms. Uh, I will say, if you look at the various channels that you can, you know, uh, effectively attack a bank, um, the the security mechanisms are certainly the weakest at the phone channel. Uh, but that's been things typically like you know knowledge based authentication questions. So there's scripting and and and, and training for the CSR agents uh, or the reps. Uh, around these these what we call KBA questions, um, and 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 that's what's typically utilized uh, uh, for them to um, you know especially before pin drop um, to try to effectively authenticate you know callers calling in and and and, and identifying themselves as some some customer for the bank. Um, you know, there's also typically um, fraud analysts that that work um, um, with these these large financial institutions. Who are very well trained on identifying, you know, bad actors, and we typically work with those teams, and they use, you know, Pindrop's solution to um, assess, you know, what we call Pindrop alerts that identify potential fraud within within the within the call center. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, what? Why don't you walk us through a typical attack that a fraudster would make on a call center? You know, give us the objectives that the that the fraudster is trying to achieve and what measures the call center uh, has in place to to block potential fraud. Yeah, so, you know, uh, again, typically what will happen is, um, you know, the, the, the fraudster will first work a variety of different channels to gather information about a particular account they want to target. Um, and so you mentioned social engineering before. So... That may involve um, gathering information like birth dates or perhaps someone's mother's maiden name from perhaps social media, um, which a lot of this information is now readily available. Um, in, in some cases, they may also um, you know, call the, the, the target directly and present themselves as the bank to try to confirm information. Um, so once they're armed with that, 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 that information, they'll then directly call um, into the call center, into the bank, and you know, again, Im- impersonate that person. And in one of the most frequent types of attacks that we block, uh, you know, work to, to prevent are account takeovers. Um, and you know, effectively, what they're trying to do is, um, you know, become authenticated as the account owner, and then they may want to, um, you know, have a new debit card kind of mailed to um, a, a a a new address that they've they've updated, um, and then they have all of a sudden changed the address, 
Um, and now they have access to a credit card and they can go and start actually, um, you know, um, uh, making purchases. Um, you know, other, other actions we see related to these take, you know, account takeover events is they will, um, you know, issue fraudulent wire transfers. And sometimes these are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, these amount up to, um, for the industry, you know, you know, in the U S alone, you know, adds up to roughly 20 billion, um, uh, dollars in loss due to phone fraud. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. So it sounds like the, you know, you mentioned the social media, uh, information that's, that's freely available. And I could imagine this could potentially poke holes in the security models. Like what is your first car or what is your mother's maiden name? This is material that the fraudster might be able to just find by having a friendship with somebody on Facebook. In, in, indeed, in, indeed, and you know, I, I take it a step further too. You know, when we see at times, you know, I mentioned sometimes there's five to six calls before this type of event happens into the call center, and they will even, you know, extract this information from the agents who genuinely think they're talking to the actual account owner. Yet, indeed, you know, in reality, they're 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 attempting to gather this type of information. Then they call back again and go through a, a cleaner path to actually say, execute a fraudulent wire transfer. So we're definitely going to get into pin drop eventually and how that works and how you avert call center fraud. But just to touch on this topic a little bit more, how, I mean, should banks be or or other call center uh, potential fraud targets as well, I guess, should they be invoking further measures against against this type of fraud? I mean, I can imagine you could introduce a whole host of other types of authentication questions that would add more friction at the customer service level, but maybe more effective towards preventing some of that $20 billion in fraud. I mean, I, th- I think, look, I think the answer is they are. I mean, that's, that's effectively where, where Pindrop comes into play. And if you look in the you know, U.S., we're in the top three of the, 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 the uh, th- three of the top four U.S. banks. So I think there is a, again, they have teams of fraud analysts that are trying to prevent these types of attacks. They're investing heavily in the technology to, um, uh, to prevent them. So, uh, I mean, I will say this is certainly a very strategic initiative for them. You know, we, we hear about breaches, not just in banks, but across the board. And, you know, security is at the top of in everyone's mind and is, you know, certainly our, our board level conversations. And, and we see that within banks as well. Hmm. Okay, well, let's get into Pindrop. So why don't you just tell us what Pindrop does at a high level? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I mentioned sort of the, the three different channels that, that can be exploited, um, you know, from a fraud standpoint from, from banks. So we focus in at the bank call center. And, and what we do is, um, you know, we have developed um, what we call phone printing. Um, and, and you can kind of think of this as a unique fingerprint for a, a given phone call. Um, and, uh, what we do with this, 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 this phone print is actually, uh, derived from or extracted from the, the, the raw call audio. So we ingest the call audio from the conversation that you may be having with, um, a, 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 a customer support representative, um, and we identify, um, 
you know, what, uh, what amounts to 147 different features that we extract directly from this call audio. So this is things like codec artifacts, um, aspects or, or, or statistics around the noise. So things like clarity or signal to noise ratios. Um, we look at things like packet loss, and this is actually a pretty interesting one, Jeff, in that if you look at the path through the telephony infrastructure that a call will take, there are certain kind of um, effects or impacts on the actual audio that is received on you know, the destination end. And you know, some of that may be packet loss. So these different features or signals, these 147 of them that we extract through our audio analysis algorithms form this this phone print and this is kind of at the heart of pindrop's core ip and what we do and you know we've patented this um so we 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 take that that phone print we combine it with other um uh kind of information about the call so think of it as like kind of call metadata um you know the time of the call and um the originating phone number um uh as well as some other information about that phone number and then we funnel that through a, um, a variety of different machine learning models that, that um, we use to assess various uh, kind of risk, um, risk uh, factors, if you will. And so that is combined into eventually a, um, a final risk score, um, you know, between zero and 100 that characterizes the likelihood that this is fraud. And that is um, essentially what our, our customers consume. So we service them pin drop alerts. Um, for a given call, and there is a risk score associated with that, and then they will, you know, assess and you know may end up blocking, um, um, you know, potential actions that are ha- happening um, through that kind of call session, if you will. So when we're just talking, when we're just talking about these sonic artifacts that occur in a fraudster's phone print. Why, just be, because of how it's been routed through the telephony infrastructure, why why is that so orthogonal to how a legitimate caller's phone print would look? Well, one is, you know, if because we can uniquely characterize the call, um, and it's kind of independent of what is said on the call, or necessarily the phone number associated with it, we can do some interesting things with that, right? So I could kind of use that to build a, bl- a blacklist and say, well, this phone print is bad. So if we have very, very similar phone prints, you know, they're likely to also be bad. Um, so it's it's really about trying to reduce the um, the call to you know effectively a, a fingerprint that we can then do intelligent things with for the purpose of, of blocking fraud. Okay. Um- what are the what are the routes that these calls are taking from fraudsters? I mean, why why isn't a fraudster just calling in on a cell phone the same way that a uh, a normal user would? Yeah, so that's that's also a good a good question. I mean, there's certain um, things that are easier to do from a fraud standpoint. You know, for example, if you're making a VoIP call, so um, you know, a very common thing that fraudsters will do is uh, forge or what we call spoof a phone number and. When you're making a call that's originating out of a you know the VoIP, uh, um, uh, you know it's a VoIP call that's much easier to do than you know uh, through the traditional um, telephony infrastructure. So what you'll see is a you know a VoIP call that will go through perhaps you know um, you know Skype and then hit you know a more traditional you know uh, uh, carrier like Verizon or AT and T and then eventually make its way through their network and then you know. 
uh, terminate within, you know, at, at the, the bank call center eventually. Um, so, you know, that's kind of one aspect of it. Um, there's also just, you know, geographically, some of these, um, um, what I'd call kind of um, groups of fraudsters may may work in certain parts of the world and they just don't really have a choice but to kind of go through a, a specific path through the through the telephony infrastructure. Can a fraudster proxy the phone number he or she is using to look like my phone number? Yeah, indeed. This is very common and, and actually quite trivial to do nowadays. Um, I mean, honestly, Jeff, if you went to Google and just uh, um, did a search for you know spoofing a phone number, you're going to see a bunch of different services. Um, alternatively, you can go and kind of build your own using a, a service like Twilio or Plevo. Um, so it, it's very common. And, and, you know, honestly, that's what makes it um, hard you know, hard to just use a phone number to uh, to verify or or prevent fraud because it's so easy to actually spoof those. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay, so can you talk some about how Pindrop's Pindrop software integrates with the phone systems that the call centers have in place? Uh, yeah, sure. So you know, we we provide a a, a user interface um, that uh, one fraud analyst and teams of fraud analysts can come in and use, and you know that's where they can service pin drop alerts. Um, so, you know, so that's a a, a web based application um, that they can interact with. So that's that's one route that's actually quite common, um, and we have a you know a, a, an alert and case manager um, interface so they can do that. Um, you know, and that's from an engineering standpoint. You know, we you know have UI development teams as well as robust backend engineering teams to to build out this infrastructure. So, uh, additionally, we serve up a variety of different you know APIs that these customers can interact with um, and then integrate to whatever their um, their CTI systems or you know their telephony infrastructure uh, kind of on a case by case basis. Okay, so if I'm a customer service representative at a bank, somebody calls in, it gets routed through Pindrop at some point and the call is assigned a risk sco- risk score. So I'm I'm the customer service rep. What do I do with that risk score? So, well, first let me back up and say in some cases it's literally teams of fraud analysts that will um, you know, use the product. Um, and they get alerted to high risk calls and then they may um, you know, contact a particular, you know, CSR that's that's engaged in the call. Um, you know, and oftentimes too, um, you know, certain actions may be initiated in a call that can be paused or reversed even after the call. Um, in other cases, if if there are integrations with the the CSR uh, kind of just called the CSR desktop, um, they may have higher risk treatments and additional questions they could ask when um, authenticating um, the particular caller, or they could route it to a specialist who's who's better trained to actually handle what what we think are, are potentially fraudulent calls or high risk calls. So you're saying these fraud analysts? Do you have you have customer service representatives, and the maybe they don't even need to worry about the the fraud potentially because you have these fraud analysts that will get f- signaled if if the uh, risk score reaches a certain threshold, and if that occurs, the fraud analyst can take action on that uh, transaction between the customer service representative and the person that's calling in. And I mean, what what kinds of actions can they take? You you mentioned uh, they can take certain measures. Can they make 
can they make it so that maybe the transactions are easier to reverse it? Like, you know, if you've got like a, a somewhat medium risk score, maybe you want to go through with the transaction, but you want to make it reversible. I don't know. Maybe you could talk some about yeah, that. Yeah, sure. I mean, so first I'd say, I think, I think both the, both the customer support reps and the fraud analysts are worried about security, right? So I think they're all working diligently to, to prevent it. Um, with respect to the, Fraud analysts, you know, I think it depends on the type of action that the fraudster is try, trying to perform. So, um, and, I, and and these are measures I think that are already in place. So, you know, if, if a fraudster is trying to mail a, um, a a a new debit card to a, a new address, maybe they change the address and they're trying to mail the debit card to that address. You know, there is some time between when that 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 request is initiated to when it actually gets mailed. So, there's just the act of canceling that request. And then, you know, literally reaching out to the genuine account holder and issuing them a new card. Um, so I think it, it's going to depend, Jeff, on the type of action that the fraudster is trying to perform. Um, you know, in that one circumstance, it may be mailing a, you know, changing an address and mailing a new card um, to, you know, to themselves so they can then, you know, exploit the account. Others may be issuing a wire transfer and then, you know, um, and then attempting to cancel that before it actually happens. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, totally. So let's talk more about the risk score because this is the the most important component of what we're talking about here. This is the actionable element that eventually gets propagated to the CSR or the fraud analyst. What are the components that go into a risk score and how do you develop what that risk score is a composition of? Yeah, so I mean um, – it is at the heart of kind of the IP that 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 that, that Pindrop has. So you know, there's only so much I can say um, uh, about it. Um, however, you know, we um, again, you know, we have the creation of the phone print um, that is this composition of these 147 different features of the audio. Um, that is kind of the foundation. Of it, and then using that phone print um, to compose the the actual risk score. So for us, it is um, you know about developing and building new machine learning algorithms that can adjust these these phone prints. We also do some stuff with voice biometrics and having phone uh, voice prints as well, and and composing these things through different machine learning models um, into a, a a single unified risk score. Um, so, so for us, you know, a lot of the challenges from an engineering and research standpoint are, you know, how do we continue to improve that? Um, how do we, um, you know, from an engineering standpoint, do that at scale, you know, we do this in real time, um, and, and, you know, then allowing our research team to rapidly iterate on, on, um, you know, the machine learning models, additional kind of features that could be fed into them to increase performance of the system. So doing this at scale, does that mean that the tra- the source of the training data, is it all of those calls that are being routed through the different customer service representatives that are using Pindrop? Yeah, you know, one of the unique things we have to deal with is, you know, there's different types of uh, fraud attacks across different, you know, um, uh, geographies and, 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 and customers. So, um, so yes, you know, we, we do have to, we tune our, our machine learning algorithms and, um, and you know there is certainly a, a as with most machine learning algorithms some 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 uh, concept of, of training, um, so we go through something similar to that. 
Okay, and is the training is the source of the training data the call centers that uh, that are running Pindrop? Uh, yes. So, I mean, there certainly is uh, training go- going through, you know, actual real customer data. And there's also, you know, like many machine learning algorithms, you know, feedback loops. So we continue to improve and, and, and learn as we're ingesting and even running inside of a production environment. Interesting. Okay. Do you store all – because it's, it's interesting because I can imagine as you discover new things uh, about how – uh, fraudsters are doing things. Maybe you would want to rerun machine learning models, or maybe you would want to rerun uh, some some older training data through a machine learning model. So that begs the question: uh, like, how long do you save calls for? Because that can be, I can imagine that data really adds up. Uh, yeah, the, the data really does add up. It's also uh, something that's very sensitive too, right? So um, you know, you kind of have to balance all that. You're hitting the nail directly on the head, though, Jeff. Though. You know, we have a very, you know, our, our kind of culture and mindset here is, is highly research driven. Um, and so in order to improve and innovate, you need to have access to that historical data. Uh, I mean, and if you look at kind of advances in in the machine learning field, a lot of it has been recently because our data sets have gotten so big. So that, that holds for us, too. So we do our best to balance, you know, the cost um, sort of associated with retaining all of this data while also satisfying, you know, sort of, uh, in some cases, our customer requirements about retaining that data itself. Hmm. Can you talk more about the challenges associated with that? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there's there's a, a couple things. You know, one is that, you know, we run, you know, our, our, our products and services run in diverse environments. In, in some cases, we have... Um, you know, uh, components or services that run on premise within a bank call center. Um, in other cases, we run and even strategically try to push as much of that to the cloud as possible. Um, you know, so some of the, um, you know, uh, constraints we have to work within are, you know, when you're on premise versus in the cloud, it's, you know, easier to add more resources in, 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 uh, in some of these than others, right? So part of that is just storage and, and retention given the available resources we have. Um, you know, and that also means from an engineering standpoint, we need to be very thoughtful about, um, you know, optimizations um, and paying attention to certain, you know, components and certain you know, parts of the, of the platform that we build out. Um, you know, and, and for our cloud environments, um, you know, we can do what most people do and just scale horizontally and storage is cheap. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's easier to solve there. But, you know, we've got to be cognizant about um, you know, running across diverse environments, it introduces a lot of really interesting engineering challenges. Um, and, you know, even the way we build our software in, in respect to that, we try to um, ensure that um, we, you know, certainly are, uh, can, can run in these diverse environments. So for us, you know, internally, we're, you know, heavily investing in, um, you know, containerization of, of, of our services. So investing in Docker and Docker orchestration tooling. Um, and, you know, so from a, from a team standpoint, that's a lot of fun and, you know, it's a, a fast moving area. Um, so, you know, I'd say that's certainly one of the challenges we face. So to, to clarify, I think what you're saying is that you have these, some customers who are entirely on-prem, perhaps some who have hybrid clouds where they're partly on-prem and partly in the cloud, some are entirely in the cloud and you need your software to be uh, heterogeneous and be able to run on all of these environments and you're saying that containerization has been helpful for you there. Um, 
can you talk talk in a little more depth about how you satisfy that heterogeneity? Yeah, so you know, from an from an engineering standpoint, you know, I like to say we think of compute as compute. Like, I don't really care if it's physical appliances running on premise or up in you know AWS or or, or GCE up in Google Compute. Um, so you know, we from an engineering and architectural standpoint. You know, we build loosely coupled services and this is, you know, everyone's kind of doing this nowadays, microservices. And we, you know, through using things like Docker can, from a software development standpoint, in, in, in some circumstances, think less about where it's going to be deployed, like physically where that box will sit. Um, because, you know, um, as a developer, I just build my service and, you know, wrap it in Docker and it's more portable, right? So I think from... I believe if I'm understanding your your question correctly, you know, part of it is trying to use tooling um, uh, that makes our things more portable so that when we build these loosely coupled services, we're less concerned about where it actually sits. Now, in some circumstances, though, you know, for network taps, for example, or, you know, ingesting uh, the raw, raw signal, you know, call audio, that may be a little bit more nuanced and specific to uh, to the environment that we're we're pulling it from. Um, so it's a little bit about trying to focus in on what that service is doing, um, in, 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 in is whenever possible, make it as portable as possible. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So let's if you can walk me through the architecture of how a new call would be ingested into the machine learning model. So like if a call gets made to a customer service rep somewhere um, and then the call gets saved, I don't know, does it get saved to your servers or does it get saved to the servers of the company? And then how does that call propagate through the machine learning algorithm? And what does that algorithm, well, maybe not from a, uh, IP standpoint, but just from a like, what what tool tools are you using to ingest it? And yeah, yeah, no, so that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, so typically, uh, if you know, either the call is forked to us and we ingest it in the cloud, or uh, we have a network tap on premise that will actually you know tap tap the network passively, and 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 we can consume uh, the raw call or call audio, and and um, so that's typically in um, you know SIP or RTP uh, is the raw call call audio. So we ingest. You know the audio packets, and we'll kind of aggregate them together, and um, and then you know our architecture, like many nowadays, is we try to build things in a horizontally horizontal horizontal scalably way, um, and um, you know so we will ingest the raw call audio, um, put it effectively onto a bus or queue, and then we have a series of of you know workers that will pick it up and 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 work on it. So. We do a lot of stuff with queuing infrastructure like RabbitMQ. We also use uh, Redis pretty heavily for some things. Um, and, and then depending on the parts of the pipeline, if you think about the machine learning pipeline, like first there is we have the raw audio and we need to convert it into this phone print. Um, so for some of those tasks, um, you know, it may be better suited for a lower level language like C or C++ or, you know, we're, we're uh, kind of investing in Go right now as well. Um, and, you know, that may perform the audio analysis aspect and some of the, the digital signal processing uh, pieces. Um, 
again, a queuing-based uh, uh, kind of architecture, if you will. So then eventually that funnels in through the machine learning models. Um, you know, again, we kind of try to use the best tool for the job. Um, a lot of the uh, ML work we do is in Python today. Um, and then that'll funnel it through the machine learning classifiers and then, you know, outcome risk scores. Um, so, you know, depending on the, um, you know, in some circumstances, the it, largely the audio is stored uh, today on premise. Um, and there are certain advantages of doing that related to the sensitivity of it. Um, and then, you know, other aspects are run as a cloud service um, uh, for some of the, uh, you know, when we pull in additional metadata about uh, the particular call, you know, given a phone number, we can pull in information about, um, you know, the, the carrier or the particular kind of line type, if you will. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're saying after you pass the call through the machine learning algorithm, you save it on-premise or the bank saves it on-premise? No. So this is actually running within the Pindrop platform. And again, de depending on okay. the deployment model, um, you know, in, in many cases, the audio would be, if needed, uh, stored on-premise. Yes. Fascinating. So, um, you know, I... I'd love to know more about the the way that different teams interoperate. Like, the, do you have a machine learning team? Do you have a, um, I don't know, uh, and give me a description of how the, because, I mean, we, we did some shows about machine learning a while ago, and there was this frequent uh, issue where the machine learning team would, would work on a model and there, and, and, you know, theoretically, the model would just get handed off to the production team, but in in actuality, uh, there tended to be this this friction between machine learning teams and the production developers, where the machine learning team would develop some prototype, and then it would actually be harder to get into production. So, I always like to ask you know about about this area when I'm uh, interviewing a, a company with a heavy machine learning component. Yeah, you know, so for within Pindrop, we have you know a very um, uh, mature and robust research department that you know has audio researchers, kind of audio scientists, data scientists that work on the machine learning models, and you know for us, we um, you know I kind of touched on a little bit about you know Pindrop's culture and it being very engineering research led. So there's a very close relationship between um, the engineering organization and the research organization. And, um, you know, working very closely on making sure our architecture from, a, uh, you know, from a production system standpoint enables, you know, our research team to rapidly iterate and innovate on, on, on those models. And I mean, if you, if you think about, um, you know, look at like the antivirus space, you know, um, those get updated, those virus signatures get updated very, very frequently. So we work really hard to make sure we're rapidly releasable and can iterate on these machine learning models and algorithms. Uh, and again, I think that is best enabled by, um, you know, having a close relationship between engineering and research. In some cases, research engineers will embed with our, our different engineering teams uh, and vice versa. So, um, you know, for us, it's just making sure that we enable you know, the constant testing and tweaking and testing again so we can evaluate hypotheses and then getting that deployed into production, um, you know, rapidly in a very, you know, uh, safe and, 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 and controlled way. 
What is the pace of the war between spammers and anti-spammers in this environment? Because this is always true. There's like a, a, a certain tempo of the uh, war between in, in every fraudster versus anti-fraudster environment. There's a different tempo of the war. I mean, how quickly do you need to process a new call? Um, do you need to do it yeah, like instantly because you need to update your systems very quickly because you're going to get barraged by some new technique every day or, uh, you know, how, how time sensitive are these, are these workloads? Yeah. I mean, so I, I would probably need to defer some of that to part of our research team. Uh, it certainly isn't a, a daily thing. I, I wouldn't say it's that, um, uh, uh, dynamic. I mean, a lot of these attacks build up over time as a result of siphoning information across a variety of different of, of attack vectors. Um, you know, we, from an engineering standpoint, and you know, from an architectural standpoint, really just work hard to make sure that as they innovate and solve, you know, from a research standpoint, um, can get that deployed as as rapidly as possible. Because at the end of the day, you know, we we don't want our, our customers who are directly banks, but at the end of the day, you know, consumers, um, you know, we don't want them to you know f- you know succumb to, to 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 these fraudulent attacks. So I would say from from what I've seen, it certainly isn't a daily thing, um, uh, but you know, certainly is you know evolves more than you know just a couple times a year. Hmm. So, um, you know, I've been thinking about these uh, scheduling uh, questions a lot lately. There was a, we did a recent show about schedulers, and um, I don't know. It makes me think like how how predictable are your workloads, and what like do you have situations where you have idle machine time, and are you looking to try to minimize that? I mean, you so you're the VP of of engineering and cloud services, and so I imagine that thinking about scaling up and down the infrastructure is an interesting question to you. So I'm just curious where where you find yourself with idle machine time, how you're trying to utilize that, or how you're trying to minimize it. We talked earlier about having you know this on-premise in in, in cloud-based presence, and I, I would say strategically we're pushing more and more of our infrastructure to the cloud. There's a lot of advantages there, and um, about rapid deployments, whatnot. Um, so that's where we're very actively investing right now and in building out our teams. Um, and you know the interesting thing is you're pointing out is if you think about um, for like a bank, just the call patterns throughout the course of a day, you're going to get something like a bell curve, right? Where, you know, from the hours of nine to five, that's where the majority of their traffic is coming. And, you know, you're going to see peaks throughout the middle of the day. So, you know, we are actively, um, you know, uh, investing in um, kind of dynamically provisioning infrastructure in a fully automated way to, you know, minimize costs through these ups and downs. And, um, you know, through through the traffic and, and the load itself, and um, so that's something we're very very cognizant of and uh, investing heavily in. And uptime is obviously quite important for a security company. What's the relationship between your development and your operations team at Pindrop? Yeah, that's it's a it's a great question. It's something I'm very um, kind of passionate about. You know, we we think a lot about. Um, you know, just in general engineering org structure to make sure the teams are as autonomous and empowered as possible. And, you know, for us, the answer there is, um, you know, having integrated teams where, you know, if you think about a service or a handful of services that a team may, may be responsible for, making sure that they can build, test, release, and maintain that. 
So, you know, the model we have, um, you know, this is, uh, again, I'll admit a, a common model. I mean, it's very much kind of follows the Spotify model where, um, you know, that, that team that's owning that service can um, get it deployed into production and, 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 and maintain it. So, um, you know, we have embedded DevOps engineers on our teams. Um, those teams will have, you know, scope and ownership of different parts of our um, uh, of our cloud-based infrastructure. And, um, you know, everyone across that team is, is at, at some point responsible for quality, but then, you know, we have different tiers. So, you know, DevOps engineers with some rotation will be the first to, you know, get... Um, uh, uh, you know, alerted after it's gone through, you know, our support tier, if you will. Um, and then eventually if needed, you know, software engineers get, get pulled in as well. So again, our, our kind of approach to this is having, you know, kind of integrated teams, um, so that they can really own services, uh, and approaching it that way. Hmm. Can you talk more about the broader culture? Cause, uh, Pindrop is obviously growing quite fast. The team is growing. The product is growing in popularity, what are the difficulties in maintaining the culture that you've achieved throughout this process? Yeah, you know, Jeff, I, I'd say, again, that's something else that we're very keen on um, and, and pay a lot of attention to. And, and I mentioned that we have this, what I'd say, engineering and research-led culture at, at Pindrop. Um, you know, as I look at a lot of, especially B2B startups or companies, you typically kind of have a an MBA mindset or they're kind of sales and marketing led. And, you know, sometimes we, we think of Pindrop as having this PhD mindset and interestingly, you know, 10% of our staff has PhDs and we're kind of looking to maintain that as we scale and grow the company. But, you know, so that culture, as I mentioned, you know, lends itself to focusing on the very hard problems. You know, we're literally fighting crime with, you know, with science is the way we try to like to look at it. And so that's that culture of constantly testing, tweaking, testing, you know, coming up with these new hypotheses. Um, and, uh, you know, we have to work to maintain that as we grow. I mean, in, um, in 2015, you know, company revenue and, and, and headcount doubled. So uh, going through that type of growth, we've got to pay close attention to to maintain that, that type of innovative culture. And so, you know, the way we've approached that at, at Pindrop is one – you know, making sure we focus on our teams and, and, and allowing them to continue to grow and learn and, you know, offering things like budgets for training and, and conferences. Um, you know, geographically, we're also located, uh, at least HQ, our headquarters in Atlanta is, you know, walkable distance to Georgia Tech. And we have very close ties to um, the university there. Um, and our chief scientist, you know, is a, a professor at Georgia Tech, regularly gives talks, um, you know, at, at the company. And, and, you know, I think those types of things have enabled us to, um, um, you know, not have our growth and additional processes we've had to put in place stifle our ability to innovate and experiment. Hmm. The culture sounds, maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds somewhat like Palantir, because I think Palantir is notorious for not having a focus on sales and marketing people, and they make the engineers do the sales work. Well, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far. I mean, we have a very um, 
uh, a fantastic sales by team. Way, by the way, I may have totally just just uh, misrepresented the Palantir <laughs> business model. No, no, no. Um, so, I mean, I, I'd say for Pindrop, look, we, you know, at the end of the day, we are a B two B company, and we have a very, you know, uh, enterprise sales cycle, right? And um, I, I would say, how would I characterize? It? I mean, I think you can imagine that. Uh, our engineers and scientists, um, while they appreciate it, don't really get excited about that. So, um, you know, we rely on that sales team to get out and, 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 and get, get these deals done and, um, you know, give us the, uh, uh, the bandwidth and rope to go on and, and build the product and, and innovate. Um, but I, I, I will say though, the way we just think about evolving the product and, and improving it, um, is largely an engineering and research-led thing here. Hmm. So speaking of engineering versus research, you spent significant time in academia. Can you talk about how the culture between academia and industry differs from your point of view? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. I mean, um, you know, you're right. You know, I spent, uh, I, I did my graduate studies at the University of Maryland up in College Park and, um you know, I, I, I think with when you are pursuing a PhD, you're, you're going, um, you know, really, really deep on a problem. And I sometimes say you go so deep that only 100 people in the world really care about it. Um, and in some, some cases that, that, that is true and others, there's very, very broad applicability to it. Um, so, you know, I think the things that you, um, um, which I think are good, that you can overlook when you're in academia are, are, are necessarily, you know, the, like the market acceptance or, you know, um, you know, end user kind of value in some cases that, um, the research may have, I mean, in some cases for, um, you know, if you're studying algorithms and algorithm research, um, some of the practical applications are, are less obvious than others. And, you know, at least in startups, um, Early on, you don't have to nearly go as deep before you can try to test and and, and launch a product. Um, so I think you know part of the difference is, and depending on the stage of the startup, the the depth you have to go to before you've really you know uh, proven something out and demonstrated it um, is kind of one aspect there. Um, you know, I, I think though there. are are a lot of common things though. I mean, a lot of it is you're both in academia and in industry, you're trying to innovate and, you know, in many cases solve very hard problems, technically challenging problems. I mean, that's one of the things we do here at Pendrop. And, you know, we have seen, um, you know, a very healthy kind of relationship between, you know, our, our academic ties, um, and, uh, you know, our relationship with, with universities, um, um, and kind of carrying that into the way we think about solving problems for our customers today. So, I mean, I think there's common, you know, there's common aspects, there's some differences as well. I think it also depends on sort of the, the stage of the startup versus, um, you know, kind of even perhaps where you're at in your academic career. I mean, if, when you're first trying to pursue a PhD, you've got to figure out what your dissertation topic is going to be. And sometimes that's even trial and error, which has some, some, some common aspects to early stage startups. So, you know, I, I don't know if that directly answers your questions, but there, there's, um, you know, at least for us at Pindrop, it's been, um, you know, our roots, you know, some of the foundational technology transitioned out of academia and, you know, we've had to then 
figure out how to scale it, package it up in a way that works for you know the type of customers that we sell it into. So we've had to take it you know many degrees further from a product standpoint. Does that make sense? Yeah, my my impression of the research side of things when it comes to computer science is that computers have become so prominent and proliferate that it's almost like if if you're studying something deeply in computer science and it has no broad applicability i mean that would that would almost be surprising um, i mean what are the uh, cuz and and you increasingly see companies with longer and longer time horizons on the um commercializability of their research. I mean, if you go look at some of the papers that people are writing at Google, it's like, how is this on earth? How, how is this going to be useful in the future? It looks as useful as an as a far-flung academic paper. So, I mean, is there what what is the the market difference between the type of uh, you know, non-immediately commercializable um, perhaps strange research that goes on in academia versus that that goes on in industry because my impression is just that like they're they're coming so close together with perhaps the only differentiation being uh you know academia has less of this you know even distant forcing function on commercializability yeah i mean uh, you know jeff i think it's a fair observation i mean you even see some prominent academics you know and researchers going to large you know organizations um and and pursuing their research there, and um, I mean, I, I I think it's a fair observation that uh, that that kind of delineation is becoming less clear. Um, you know, you also have you know um, you know more um, you know a variety of different options for partnering up with academic institutions and trying to spin out some of the technologies. Some of those are even government funded, like you know the. Um, through the SBIR and STTR research grants that, that the government kind of pairs you up with an academic, uh, you may pair up with an academic institution. So yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a it's a fair uh, a fair assessment. Um, and I, sp- I suppose there's also the the Berkeley Amp Lab side of things, where you know the Berkeley Amp Lab you know spun out so many super important companies uh, that are going to be really big in the near future, and if those guys would have been doing their research at Google, then probably all those companies would just be alphabet subsidiary. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fair in that, in that, in that case, certainly. I mean, um, it's, you know, I think with, with academia and academic research, you know, historically it's been, uh, I'd say in many cases, higher risk, some of the research projects, as far as their, the likelihood of success or failure from a business standpoint, but you know, as you just pointed out, some of that research now is just transitioning more into some of these larger, you know, uh, corporate entities. Um, and you know, part of that shift, you know, perhaps could be tied to sort of the shifts in the investor landscape and, and risk appetite. Um, and you know, companies realizing that um, you know um, some of the enabling research may come up in non-obvious ways. So. Hmm. So coming back to Pendrop to begin to close off, what's the long-term vision for Pendrop? Uh, yeah, you know, so if you look at, you know, for us, we really think of Pendrop as, uh, you know, today a voice security company. And, um, you know, if you look at, 
um, just voice as a a mechanism to interact with computing devices, like voice as a as a as a as a user interface. We think that is going to continue to grow at uh, really explosive rates. And I don't know if you've you know uh, read say Mary Meeker's you know 2016 industry trends report. You know, voice. That's a lot of information. It was a wealth of information. <laughs> sure is, but you know, uh, you know, she correctly pointed out that just. Voice as an interface is is rapidly growing. I mean, it's it's really um, amazing. You know, if you look at like Google Voice search, it's um, some of the stats there. You know, up thirty six x since two thousand eight and 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 seven x since twenty ten. So, um, you know, we think we're going to continue to see that, and we're we're even seeing that now in the consumer market, right? With the Amazon Echo and Siri, and the list goes on. And really, the the longer term vision for Pindrop is we want to be that identity and security layer for all of those voice interactions. You know, right now we're focused on the enterprise, um, mostly in, in in call centers, but we think just voice as as a as a means to interact with computing devices, be it your watch or your your TV or an Echo, you're going to need you know identity and security solutions uh, for that that interaction, and and that's where we we'd love to end up playing. It, so if I'm sitting in the living room with a friend of mine and my friend yells out to my Amazon Alexa to order 50 gold-plated uh, Apple Watches, like, you know, I, I guess I would want Pindrop sitting between uh, my friend and Alexa to, um, I don't know, have some layer of verification on the voice or what is what is the... What's the security? How does the security or the 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 risk vector uh, of these type of voice services? How does that present itself? Uh, I mean, you know, we we like to think of it as you know, um, you know, today it's we're really you know securing the the um, the phone channel and the enterprises, right? And the the the, the different risk vectors may change when you start to look at more of these consumer devices. And, and, you know, that's a space where you haven't been active in, but, you know, I, I would say, and this is just me speaking, you know, it's, it's some function of your, your, your voice, um, you know, your location and, and perhaps the device. And then, you know, when you're in your own home, it's probably going to largely come down to your voice, uh, in the example you just gave. Um, so, you know, again, that's sort of the longer term vision for us. Um, on, on being that kind of, you know, security layer there. Um, and you know, but that's, I think down the road. I love it. That's fascinating. What are, are there, I'm trying to think of previous companies that have tried to make or have, have made the jump from enterprise to, uh, larger consumer models. What are the typical frictions that you encounter when you're moving from enterprise to, uh, more consumer. Yeah, I mean, I think one practical one is just you know if when you're an enterprise company, your you know whole sales process and, and cycle is is geared towards just that, right? Um, so you are going to have to adapt and change uh, that part of your business. Um, you know, other ones from a practical standpoint are just what are the different business relationships from a, from a biz dev standpoint. Um, you know, and then, you know, there's also probably going to be, um, you know, from an engineering standpoint, uh, scale issues about how you manage that, um, uh, that transition, you know, so how does the scale impact, um, um, you know, your, 
engineering and architectural kind of decisions. So, you know, for us, uh, we uh, think about solving those problems by bringing in, you know, one, the right partners and, and investors. And for us, that's, you know, we've been very fortunate um, to have very good uh, financial partners like, you know, Andreessen and, and Google Capital and IVP. And then building, you know, uh, teams that can adapt and, and build out our infrastructure that's highly scalable and, and um, you know, kind of, um, you know, can easily adapt to these, these shifting kind of um, usage uh, uh, kind of environments and, 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 and use cases. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Well, Chris, this has been an awesome conversation. I'm, I'm very interested in Pindroff now that I understand the longer term vision. I was not aware of that. Um, okay. Well, well, thanks for coming on the show and I'm glad to have you as a guest and as a listener of the show. Um, I hope to have you back sometime in the future. Yeah, Jeff, look, it was a lot of fun. I, I'm, I'm really grateful you had me on and um, I appreciate it.